All right, well, so tonight we are going to try to get through chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Exodus. So we're going to dive right in, starting with verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When, Moses, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So Moses has been years by this time in the wilderness, tending to his father's sheep and raising a family, minding his own business. He had his time in Egypt and he's minding his own business. And he has this encounter with God that we're all very familiar with. There's a few things that I want to draw out of it. It says that the angel of the Lord appeared. I would suggest that a better translation is the messenger of the Lord. A lot of people ask, what are these encounters, these encounters with God through the messenger of the Lord? And I'm going to make very short work of just giving you what I think is going on here. I think we have the messenger of the Lord, the word of the Father, Jesus, before his incarnation appearing in these cases. I think it is himself, uh, the messenger of the Father. He's the premier messenger of the Father. We hear angel of the Lord and we think the creatures with wings. But I think in these cases that most of the time what's happening is this is Jesus himself appearing to his people. So think in terms of Jesus coming to appear to Moses. And he appears as this fire in the bush. And there's several things going on here, I think. But first of all, the fire. Of course, in the book of Exodus, fire will show us and symbolize God's presence again and again. But what's the significance of this fire? Well, let me just say that this fire that Moses sees is a self-renewing fire. It doesn't need fuel. Now, if you think in modern terms of a a source of energy that doesn't need fuel, like that's what everybody's looking for, right? Well, we need fuel. We need food. We need water. We need air. We need rest. God doesn't. God himself is a source of self-renewing life. And I think that's part of what's going on here. But then he's in this bush. What is the bush about? I think the bush is the people of Israel. It symbolizes all through scripture, Israel was symbolized as a bush or a vine. And here's this fire in the midst of this people, and it is not destroying them. It is setting them apart. So there's a lot going on with that image that we're getting here. And then most importantly, God says to Moses, take the shoes off your feet. Take the sandals off your feet, for this is holy ground. This is actually the first time in the Bible this word has occurred. Now, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve are driven from the presence of God, there is an angel, a cherubim, with a flaming spinning sword to keep Adam and Eve from going back into the garden. Because mankind, if he comes into the presence of God in sin, it will kill him. And so God is teaching Moses here about holiness, and much of Moses' ministry will be learning about the holiness of God. And then, of course, God taps into this story. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I made a promise to Abraham a long time ago that if he would learn, if he would follow me, I would, through him, raise up a family that would become a nation 
that would heal the world, that would fix what's wrong with the world, and I'm continuing that story now. So God draws Moses' attention to what he began all the way back with Abraham. Get to verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptian, by which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this, on this mountain. So God is about to act. He's about to do something. And most importantly, when God acts in history, he uses people. All right? He uses people. He began creation with Adam and Eve, and all along, he invites people into what he's doing, and he invites Moses into what he's about to do in history, in time, in space. And he's fulfilling, as I said, this promise to Abraham. And most importantly, he hears, he is concerned about the people of Israel. They have been groaning in slavery, and he hears that cry. And of course, Moses' response is kind of different than it was maybe if God had appeared to him before. He says, who am I? Like, wait a minute, why me? I'm not qualified. How how come you're calling me? Now, Moses thought he knew who he was, right? Early on, he goes and he kills an Egyptian that's oppressing an Israelite because it was one of his people. And after running away, he's gotten married, and he's now a Midianite, and he's spent all this time there, and it's like something's happened to Moses, and he's like, I, I, I can't do that, not me. Look how it went before. They didn't accept me before. They're not going to accept me this time. So Moses says, who am I? And it's a very important question because it's a question we all have to ask. And the question of who I am can only be answered in relation to who God is, and Moses is going to find out who he is. And who God is as the story goes on. But most importantly, God says to Moses, and this is going to be a refrain through this section, I will be with you. All right, you might title the sermon, I will be with you, because God says, I am going to be with you. This is a crucial promise that that God gives to Moses all through this section. God is going to carry out his plans, and the, the key to Moses' success is God's presence with him. And God is committed to making things better. All right, it's not just making things better for his people, but it is. But it's making things better for the world. And Moses is being invited into that repair of the world. And of course, Moses doesn't feel qualified. And as we see this conversation unfolding, and I think it's important that we see it as a back and forth conversation, uh, Moses is going to ultimately say, look, I I can't do this. God gives him a sign, and it's a little bit of a tricky sign, because he says, here's the sign. When you leave Egypt with the people, you'll worship on this mountain. Now, did anybody catch why that's tricky? Because Moses has got to commit to this whole thing. It's a sign that's only fulfilled after taking steps of trust. 
after taking some risky steps to carry it out. He's got to go. He's got to go down there. And when he comes back to this mountain, that's going to be the sign to him. And now we get to these very important verses, 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and a woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So Moses says, well, God, what do I say to them? Who's sending? What is your name? Now, in antiquity, the names of the deities, the names of the gods that people worshipped, were seen as a way to control the gods, as a way to manipulate them, as a way to get them to bless their agendas, as a way to get them on their side. So they're for domesticating the gods, for using the gods for their purposes. But notice what God says. First, he says, and he says, he responds in three stages. He says, first, I am who I am. I'm going to disagree with that translation. I'm going to be so bold to disagree with it and say that a better translation would be, I will be who I will be. I will be who I will be. I am free. You cannot control me. You cannot manipulate me. To use C.S. Lewis's idea in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not a tame lion. Right? He's not a tame lion that bends to our agenda and our expectations and our understandings of him. You can't control or manipulate me like the nations do because I am above nature and I'm beyond all of those things. And it's a future orientation. And this is key. Remember, he told Moses, I will be with you. He says, I will be who I will be. Part of what God is saying is, this is how you will find out who I am by what I do with you and in your lives. And through you, I'm about to rescue my people. I'm about to act. So it's a, it's a statement of God's commitment to action in history, to do something in history about what is wrong with the world. He's a God that surprises his people. And he says, come, follow me, and I will surprise you. I will show you. So he says, basically, the first thing is you can't pin me down. But then listen to the second thing he says. And he said, Tell the people of Israel, I will be has sent you. Go to them and say, God appeared to me. And he says, I will be who I will be. He's, he's not a God that can be contained. But you know what? He sent me to you. 
He sent me to you and he's heard your sufferings and he's going to do something. This one who is the God of our fathers, who who cannot be contained, who made everything. He is committing himself to you. Despite the fact that he can't be pinned down, he said, I have noticed you and I'm about to act in your life. And then it says, and God also said, so this is the, the third stage. And he says, the Lord, this is to be his name. And this is where we have to stop and get a little technical for just a few minutes. Because in your translations, if you have ESV, probably any of the translations you have, it says the Lord, capital, all caps, Lord. Right? Everybody see that? This is the name of God, Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H. And what's going on here is this is something more than a title. In fact, all the other names of God so far in Scripture are titles. And the only way I can illustrate it, the best way I can illustrate it, is to think of uh, the queen, right? The queen of England, her name was Elizabeth, but her title is the queen. Well, God is like the title of who God is, but what is his name? This is the only place in Scripture where God has said, here's my name. Okay, it's the only place in the Old Testament where there is not a title for God, but his name. And what does a name do? Well, again, think about the queen. If you and I met the queen while we were alive, while she was alive, we wouldn't have called her Hi Elizabeth. Why? Because, well, we're not friend or family, and she's the queen. But if she happened to say, call me Elizabeth, we would be like, what? Well, God came to Moses and said, call me Yahweh. That is my name. Now, his name, Yahweh, also seems like it's a pun on I will be. It also seems to be related to that. But by giving Moses his name, God is saying, I am infinite and beyond your imaginations. But I am committing to you, and you can address me. You can call upon me, and I will hear you. I will respond to you. He's granting Moses an incredible privilege. And an incredible, inviting him into an incredible intimacy. And inviting the people of God into that same kind of intimacy. Now, the other thing I would encourage you to do is pay attention in the Bible when it says the Lord, because I think it's an unfortunate translation. Here's where it comes from. Uh, The commandment, one of the 10 commandments says, do not use the Lord's God's name in vain, right? And Jews, because they did not want to flippantly use God's name, eventually began to say the Lord instead of using his name, all right? And it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of being careful not to use the Lord's name in vain. But I think it's important in the text when it's his name because the Lord, kind of impersonal, right? That the at the beginning of it makes it sort of impersonal, but this is his name, which he has invited his people to call him. So as we continue through the text, notice that and think Yahweh, Questions on this before I move on? All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord, Yahweh, did not appear to you. Yahweh said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your, hand, put your hand out and catch the tail. So he put his hand out and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe 
that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you again. And again, Yahweh said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. He put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So Moses kind of persists, right? It's almost like your kids when they make excuses. He's like, well, God, they're not going to believe me, right? Okay, I know your name, but they're not going to believe me. And God says, fine, I'll do something. I'll accommodate to that. I'll give you some signs. And these signs, the purpose of the signs is not to impress them, but to get them to believe that I have appeared to you and to trust that so that they will uh, set their hearts on what I'm about to do about to do. And again, I want to point out that God here is patient, right? He's patient with Moses and he's working with Moses. And Moses is kind of, if you will, talking back to God, but God is working with that. And again, the signs, and and this is, this comes up in the gospels as well. Some people believe the signs, right? But Jesus rebukes them for not getting what the signs are pointing to. Jesus provides food miraculously And they want him to give him more food miraculously. And he says, no, no, no. The point of that sign was to point to me. And you're missing that sign. Continuing with verse 10. But Moses said to Yahweh, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and tongue. Then Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with, I love this, your mouth. I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, we were talking about this last night at youth. If we, if we didn't know what the rest of the text said, what would you expect God to do? You know, I think our expectation would be kazat. <laughs> right? Blam. What does God do? Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And you will both and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be to him as God. And take, your hand in, uh, take in your hand this staff with which you will do these signs. This is, this is amazing. Our Moses first says, listen, I can't speak. And we don't know. Some people speculate that Moses had a speech impediment. We haven't seen him do a lot of speaking. We've seen him do a lot of acting. But man, a lot of years have gone by. And what happened to Moses in the wilderness during all those years? I mean, maybe, maybe Moses is an introvert. We don't know. But Moses is like, I can't. And that's his last excuse. And God says, well, I'll be with your mouth. Well, what can you say to that? God's going to be with my mouth. I mean, I, I can't be an excuse. So he finally just says, please send someone else. And this is remarkable that this super important encounter with God in the Old Testament, one of the, the hinge points, the, the turning points in the Old Testament that tells us something about the nature of God God is angry with Moses, 
But God works with Moses. He doesn't bring judgment on Moses. He accommodates Moses' weak faith. He accommodates Moses' reluctance. He works with Moses, and he comes up with a plan that will help Moses do what he needs to do. It's an amazing moment because Moses reasons with God, argues with God, and God says, listen, I'm going to carry out what I'm going to do, but he is patient with Moses. He is patient with him to involve him in what he's doing. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hands. Just really briefly, it's very interesting to me, Jethro. Pay attention to Jethro as we go along because it's already been told that he's not a Jew, but he's a priest of God most high and he fears God. And in this instance, notice what he does. Remember what happened when Jacob was staying with his uh, uncle Laban and he worked for him all those years and Laban tricked him and the years just kept stringing on and, uh, and Laban really just kept exploiting uh, Jacob and Jacob finally snuck away. What does Laban do? You let me go? Yeah, go. Go in peace. It's kind of a, a little prelude ahead of time that's the opposite of what Pharaoh's going to do. Laban wants somebody who's under him, in a sense, to thrive, to flourish, and to do what he needs to do. Pharaoh, with his authority, only wants control. He only wants to exploit. Pharaoh won't let Israel go, but Jethro will. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord to Israel, my firstborn son. Wait, excuse me. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. First, let me comment on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to leave off that very big topic that we always sort of always comes up in the text to some later incidents when this, these incidents pile up of Pharaoh hardening his heart. Let me just say, though, um, just initially, that Pharaoh, I believe, hardens his heart first. And then God further hardens his heart. That's just a preview of what we'll eventually say. But what I want to draw our attention to is what God calls Israel. Notice what he calls Israel? My firstborn son. Pharaoh, you have my child. Under your care, really. He's your guest, and you have abused him. Pharaoh, I want you to let him go, or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And that's precisely what unfolds in the ten plagues, right? The last plague is the striking of the firstborn son. This is the first time in Scripture that God calls Israel his firstborn son. And it begins this image that's going to culminate, hopefully you've noticed, in his only begotten son. Right? Israel is his child. It's his son that he has chosen, that he is blessed to be a light to the nations. And the nations have persecuted him. And God's going to do something about that. So this is laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus as God's only begotten son in whom he is well pleased. And God takes care of his son. 
It also points back to Abraham's offering up of Isaac uh, on, on Mount Moriah. So again, the fundamental evil of, of Pharaoh's regime. Pharaoh is not just your average Joe that's resisting God. He's somebody with immense power who is using that power to oppress. And God won't stand by and let that stand. Now we get to a very clear passage that has no questions. <laughs> At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was, and it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What on earth is going on? God has just picked Moses. Said, you're my man, I'm going to be with you, go, set my people free. And while Moses is on his way to do what God said to do, God wants to kill him. All right, what's going on? I am not going to answer every question about this text, but I want to give some, what I think is going on, some hints. First of all, we should thank God for texts like this in the Bible because they make you stop and ask questions. They, they bewilder you, and that's a good thing when it comes to the Bible. Right? It's a good thing to go, wait a minute, I don't understand this, so that you stop and you slow down and you look and you ask questions and you pray perhaps Bewilderment is a very good thing. Okay? So, what can we say about this passage? Let me just say a couple of things. Not even God's chosen servant is above God's right and wrong. You can be God's chosen servant, but that doesn't mean you are above accountability. Moses is still accountable. But more than anything, I want to suggest that what's going on in this passage is a foreshadowing of Passover. All right, stick with me. It's night. God is seeking to kill in judgment, and blood is used to avert God's wrath and to save a person. All right, in this case, it's Moses. I think this is a preview. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come in the Passover itself. When God struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the, the blood of the sacrificial lamb was put over the lintels of the house, and he was saved, or Israel was saved. And so I think what's going on here is God's deliverer needs to be delivered himself. The one that God is going to use to rescue his people, he himself needs to be rescued from his own failure to obey God. Now, some speculate that the problem here is that Moses didn't circumcise his kids, and he should have. And that may be what's going on. But I think more than anything, it is that blood of atonement that is being spoken to us here. And when you begin to think about that idea of blood turning away wrath, it should open up all kinds of things in Scripture, right? It should open up the Passover sacrifice. It should open up the sacrifices in the temple. It should point to baptism and communion, where we are joined with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus in faith and baptism, and where we come to the table where he gives us his flesh and his blood. So among other things, I think this passage is reinforcing what God started with. I will be who, what I will be. I will be who I will be. In fact, this passage reminds me an awful lot of that incident with Peter. Remember this incident? They're in Caesarea Philippi. 
And Jesus says to Peter, who do men say that I am? And they say, oh, Elijah and a prophet. Or, you know, they say all these different things. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. This is the high point for Moses. I'm sorry, Peter. This is kind of like this moment. I'm sending you. You're God. You're my man. Right. And then Jesus says, oh, and by the way, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to die on the cross. And Peter says, no, 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 no. Let me give you some advice. And Jesus, we could say, sought to kill him. Sought to kill the way of thinking in him that wasn't the way God thinks. Sought to invite him to take up his cross and lay behind human thinking, fleshly thinking, and take up the mind of God. Does that make sense? I think that this is a a little bit of a glimpse of the cross. Moses needs to learn to take up his cross. Moses needs to learn to think differently. If he's going to deliver the people of God, he needs to be delivered before he can deliver the people of God. And then also, I might add, it just shows that women in Moses' life, once again, save his bacon. Right? This is the sixth woman that comes along in Moses' life and is instrumental in saving him. All right. Last couple of verses. Verse 47. Yahweh said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words that Yahweh, uh, words of Yahweh with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So Moses was wrong. The people believed the people. The people believed. Now, of course, we know that this is going to get complicated as the story unfolds. Uh, We know that uh, they're going to go and or Moses is going to go and Pharaoh is going to make life harder on them. And they're like, why did you ever come? So we know that their faith is small. We know that their faith is weak. But they believe that God cares and that God is about to deliver them. Let me share three thoughts out of all this, out of all these passages. I know it's a lot of scripture and there's a lot of things I didn't address, but I want to pull out three big things. The first thing is this. Moses encounters God. Encounters with God always lead to a call to service. Encounters with God always lead to a call to service. Moses is called To interrupt his life of shepherding, which he apparently at least is content with. It says he was content to dwell with Pharaoh. To call him to go to this very risky venture and this very difficult and long and arduous venture of leading the people of Israel out of slavery. Encounter with God calls us to action on behalf of others that is sacrificial and risky. Always. And I want to suggest that when we gather, it's much like what goes on with Moses here. Every time we gather, it is a gathering to the presence of God where he speaks of what he has done and how he is involving us in what he's done. And he sends us out to be a part of what he is doing. So every time we gather, it's meant to be this call to give ourselves, to sacrifice, to take some risks on behalf of other people. All right. And when I was thinking about the example, what kind of example I might make for this, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't but think of Queen Elizabeth. Who, you know, hopefully you're reading a lot of the, peop- the things that people are saying about her. But here's a woman who at 25 was called to a responsibility 
that she never expected to have. And a responsibility, by the way, that a lot of people were saying, what is the point of the monarchy? They don't have any power. And I want to suggest that this woman put her duty and her responsibility to others ahead of her own self-interest and has been like a grandmother to the nations. I mean, she's been this, this emblem of stability, of faithfulness, of trust in God. So somewhere in her life, she encountered God, and he called her to service to others. So again, our weekly gatherings are just like Moses gathering at the burning bush, and we are commissioned regularly to be sent to give our lives to others. And he says, behold, I am with you. So the question then just simply becomes, to whom am I called to serve? Who am I called to risk for? Who am I called to maybe interrupt what I'd rather be doing for? All right, I want to suggest that every time we gather for the word of God, for the table of the Lord, he's asking the same question and commissioning us in the second way, in the same way. The second thing is this. God can handle doubt. And I love this about God. Again, I don't think any of us would have imagined that God would have tolerated Moses talking back to him. But Moses talks back with him. Moses, I don't know, does he strike you as kind of whiny? Like last night I was asking the kids, and they're like, he's a little sassy. I don't know. He's a little whiny. It's not, all right, it's not the Mary thing. Right? It's not, be it unto me as you have said, Lord. Which is our model. But it's beautiful that in God's character, he works with Moses. He says, all right, all right. I have this plan. What about this? And what about this? And what about this? And again, this really calls to mind to me the end of the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus appears to them and he says, I'm sending you to the nations. I sent Moses just to Egypt. I'm sending all of you guys to all the nations to set all the people of the world free. And the scripture at that point said they bowed down and worshiped, but what? But some doubted. There were some Moseses in there. And God said, it's all right. I'll be with you. Go. I understand, but go. You'll find that I'm with you. I'm sending you to make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you even into the end of the age. And then the last thing is just this thing of blood. Uh, I actually think that moment is significant where God sought to kill him because it's a reminder uh, that Moses himself needs rescue from sin. It's a reminder of Passover where they sacrificed a lamb and ate that lamb and burned what remained of that lamb up and had the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their house to save them from the angel of death. It's a reminder of baptism by which we attach ourselves to Jesus Christ in faith and where his blood saves us from the judgment that we deserve. And it's a reminder of the table that we come to every week where Jesus gives us his broken body and his blood shed for us. It's a reminder essentially that the people of God are called to continual repentance and daily taking up of our crosses, daily learning to undo human thinking that would avoid the cross and take up the mindset of Christ where we are given to others, where we consider other people more important than ourselves, where we learn to think like God. Amen? Amen.